Turn to 1 John chapter 4. We'll be looking at the first six verses this morning. First John 4, starting in verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. As we begin this morning, I think it's important to maybe just once again review two things um, with regard to John and his writing of 1 John. The first is that John likes to use as a teaching tool contrasts. Um, You can even maybe phrase it as choices. He's setting before the reader two different things, whether it's light and darkness, life and death, love, hatred, confesses or denies this idea of truth and lies and righteousness and sin. And we'll see that again this morning, that he's setting before the reader a contrast, a choice. But the second thing is that John is, in his writing style, kind of circular in how he progresses an argument. And so what he does is he introduces something and then he'll circle back. But he doesn't just simply repeat. John never really directly says the same thing a second time over. What he does is as he puts the, the, the topic before the reader, he'll let it just kind of sit there. And then as he swings back to it later on, he takes what he's already said and then just goes a little bit deeper. And develop it just a little bit more fully for the the reader. It it, it really is a wonderful teaching device. It's the idea of introducing a concept and just letting it sit. And it's almost as if he's, he's wanting that concept to marinate in the mind of the reader. To be underneath the surface. So that he can swing back and grab it again and say, okay, remember... Now let's plunge back down again. And let's see it again and hear it again. But go a little deeper. And this morning in our text, he's going to do that. And as he employs those two techniques, it's going to help shape our our sermon and also how we're going to approach the text. And we're going to do so using two um, points this morning. The first is commands. And then second, we'll look at confirmation. So commands and confirmation. First, commands. John, in these first three verses, is circling back to the contrast that he made earlier in the letter. 
This contrast was triggered by what he just said at the end of chapter 3. So if you look again at verse 24, John says, Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know, remember he's about insurance, helping people grasp what they know, what they can believe and know that they believe. And by this we know that he abides in us. By the Spirit whom he has given us. And as John makes mention of this assurance that they can have of their faith because of the fact that the Spirit lives within him, it triggers within him this idea of, I want to circle back. I want to grab what I was talking about back in chapter 2 about these antichrists that have come into the world. Because the Spirit of God is not the only Spirit that exists. There are other spirits, spirits of the Antichrist. And so he's going back to chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Children, it's the last hour. And if you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not from us, of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that is, that they might become plain that they were all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One. See, already he's been dealing with this contrast between the Antichrist and the anointing that they have as the Spirit has come and dwelt within them. And what he's going to do in these first three verses in chapter 4 is he's going to say, what you need is discernment. How can you tell what comes from the Spirit of God and what comes from the Spirit of the Antichrist? And that's where he introduces two commands. A negative command and a positive command. The negative is, do not believe. Specifically, do not believe every spirit. But then the positive. Test the spirits. Don't believe them all. They're not all telling the truth. They're not all right. There are some that are false. Test them. Let's just do a quick review of Antichrist. Anti means against. Antichrist are those that oppose Christ and oppose the church. And what we know from earlier in the book is that they started in the church. There are antichrists that don't. But John is specifically dealing with those that were once within the church confines. They were part of the body of Christ and they left. They didn't leave Christ. They weren't ever part of Christ. They left the church. And they're opposed to Christ. They're opposed to the, the, the church of, of Christ. And they're leaving revealed that they weren't really part of the true church. Remember we did a little ecclesiology. There's the visible church, which all of us make up. And there's the invisible church, 
which is known only to God, those that are truly in Christ Jesus. There are lots of people that profess Christ that might not possess Christ. That's the whole teaching of the book of Hebrews. And what John is warning about is there are those that look like they're Christians. They talk like they're Christians. They're part of Christian fellowships that aren't truly in Christ Jesus. Jesus writing about this would say that there are going to be wolves that come that are going to be dressed in sheep's clothing. John is just echoing the, the teaching of his master and he's saying, beware. Beware that not all that you hear in Christ's name actually is Christ. There are many that will come that will act and speak and teach as if they were representing Jesus Christ and they don't. They're false. They're actually spirits of the Antichrist. They're opposed to Christ and opposed to the church of Christ. To John here is, is setting before us a contrast. There are spirits that come from God and there are spirits that come from the Antichrist. False prophets that have gone out into the world. See, the bottom line is there's only two choices. Sometimes we make Christianity really complicated, don't we? I would like to say that John would have been a computer programmer, always dealing with ones and zeros. But he doesn't have the mind of a mathematician. But he gets the one and zero part. There's two choices. Either somebody's of God or they're of the devil. Either teaching comes from God or it comes from the devil. There, there's no murky middle. The crazy part is, though, that we as Americans want to have the murky middle. We don't like the contrast. We don't like the fact that it's light and darkness. God or the devil. John knows no middle. You'll never find middle in John. It's contrast. And we live in a world in which discernment is so lacking but so needed. We don't just swallow everything that is told to us. We don't just assume because it has a Christian veneer that it's okay. There's no need to discern. There's no need to test. There's no need for a command not to believe if we're okay just accepting everything. John begins with this affectionate phrase, little children. What, what, really what he's saying is, I care about your soul. 
And I care so much that I can't have you enter into a world naive. I can't have you enter into a world where you don't discern. I can't have you enter into a world where you don't give thought to what people are teaching and instructing. Because the very instruction can be leading you directly into hell. That's the point. It's that black and white. Not all teaching. There is no neutral teaching. It's either right or it's wrong. And specifically here, it's dealing with the person and work of Jesus Christ. Verse 2, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess, and you can put in there that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, is not from God. What does all of that mean? We have to believe in Jesus Christ. Jesus was given his name because he came to save his people from their sin. We have to believe in the atoning work of Jesus Christ. That he came as a propitiation for sin. That he came because there is no life, no hope, no salvation apart from his death and resurrection. That he had to come and give his life that we don't contribute to, that salvation is of the Lord and that he is the Christ, that he is the anointed, that he perfectly fulfills the three offices of the Old Testament, that he is the perfect prophet, priest, and king. That he's the Messiah. And when we say that we believe that he came in the flesh, it's not just saying that we believe in the incarnation. It's so much more than that. Notice that it says that he came in the flesh. That means that he came from someplace else. It's testifying to the pre-existence of the Son of God. That Jesus is God himself. That he's truly God. It's testifying to his eternal existence. He's not made. He was sent. And he became a man. He took on flesh. Living among us. Why? So he could fulfill the titles of Jesus and Christ. And that as truly man and truly God, he goes to Calvary's cross. And as truly God and truly man, he is raised from the dead and ascends to the right hand of God. He still has flesh. The amazement of the ascension is not that Jesus Christ reigns from the right hand of God. The amazement of the ascension is that the God-man reigns at the right hand of God. Not that Jesus does. He always has reigned at the right hand of God. But it's after his ascension that he goes as the God-man. And why does he go as the God-man? Because as his flesh is in heaven, so is mine. 
He's identified with my humanity and he won't set it aside. That's the hope of our resurrection. If Jesus sets aside his humanity, there's no hope for us. He's the first fruit. He's the second Adam. And because he's raised, that means that I and you, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, will also be raised. But if he returned to heaven simply as God and not the God-man, there is no resurrection. Because there is no first fruit. No hope. And what John is saying is, those that are from God know and believe the person and work of Jesus Christ. And what we do is we live in an age today where there is so much teaching on the person and work of, of Jesus Christ that's not just wrong. It's of the devil. I want that just to, to, to hang there. There's no room to disagree about the person and work of Christ. Part of the reason why we have historic confessions on this. This is why the Nicene Creed matters so much. This is why the the Chalcedonian definition of Christ matters so much. Because we have to be clear on the two natures of Christ. We have to be clear on the person and work of Christ. And that's why I have to test the spirits. That's why we have to know what the Bible says about Christ. Listen again to the Nicene Creed. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father, before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried and on the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father And he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. Written in 325 AD, the Chalcedonian definition comes a hundred years later to refine this because all error, typically all heresy within the church centers on the person and work of Christ. In every age, we have to defend what historically has been held We can't be just gushy on Christ. We have to be clear. We have to be firm. We have to be direct. 
And that's what John is saying. As a preacher of the word of God, I am not allowed to preach a defective Christ. I have to be clear, crystal clear, on who he is and what he accomplished. I get made fun of this, but words matter. And words about Christ matter ultimately. When we speak of Christ, we have to be saturated in the truth of the Word of God to to speak definitively about who He was and what He accomplished. To speak as those that are anointed by the Spirit, the Spirit of God not the spirit of the Antichrist. This is why it matters what church we go to. Not because there are some labels that are better than others. No. But not all pulpits are created equal. We're not going to church for an experience. We're going to church for Christ. He's ultimate. The rest is a sideshow. Christ matters. The exalting of Christ matters above all things. That's the commands. In the last three verses, in our second point, he turns to confirmation. In the last three verses, John more or less begins each sentence with an emphatic pronoun. You, and then they, and then we. Verse 4, you renders, are, it's the readers who are true believers. Verse 5, they are those that are of the world. And the we of verse 6, there is disagreement on what the we might be referring to. I believe that it is referring to John as a part of the apostles. I don't think it's we as in the readers, John and us. I believe John is distinguishing himself as we, the apostles. Remember, John is writing for the assurance of his readers, and he begins again with this term of affection here. What he's saying here is, little children. And he's going to move to encouragement and affirmation and assurance. You are, he says, from God. And you've overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And this is where our English translation isn't that helpful. This is where King James Bible would be more helpful because you would be reading ye in the text, which would help us see that it's plural. Y'all. We, we individualize way too much of the Bible. This is corporate. This is talking to the church. This is talking to all believers. 
And he's saying what's true of, of you all is that you all are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you all is greater than he who is in the world. He's not a call for us to go and sit by our fireplace alone with our Bible. It's a reminder that we're part of a church. We're part of something bigger than ourselves. And he's, he's not saying that you as an individual are doing this. You, you as part of a church are. See, he's already told them that he's, they're God's children, that God abides in them, they've been born of God, that the anointing abides in them, that the Spirit does. Later on in chapter 4 and verse 13, he says, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he's given us of his Spirit. He, he's, he's saying we're, we're from God and we're going to overcome. Why? Because truth wins over error. Remember in the upper room, Jesus says to his disciples, take heart. I've overcome the world. And what's he saying here? Because you're my people, because you're in me, you will overcome. You're going to overcome those that are false prophets. You're going to overcome those that teach things that are wrong about me. You're going to overcome the error in the world. Why? Because you're equipped and empowered by the ascended Christ who's done what who's given of his spirit who's given his spirit to the church and the overcoming here is not that we overcome in our own power the overcoming here is that we overcome because of the work of God that Christ overcomes and we benefit from his work in his ongoing work, this is why I think it's so important as we work through the, the book of Acts to know that the work of Christ did not end when he ascended to, to heaven. That the book of Acts is his work that he continues to do in and through his church. Luke says in the beginning of Acts, I already wrote what Christ died, has accomplished. I'm, I'm writing you again about the work that Christ continues to do through his apostles that becomes the church. And he overcomes error in this world through his church. Truth prevails. And this is in the perfect tense. It's, it's something that has occurred that has ongoing effects. But there's always the they, isn't there? We're going to overcome them. And then verse 5, they are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world and the world listens to them. Them, in this case, is those that were in the church that left. In the broad teaching of the Bible, it's all those outside of Christ. There is teaching that is inspired and connected to God and there's teaching that is inspired and connected to the devil. And he's saying that this is what the world listens to. We talked about this several weeks ago now, which might mean several months ago. Hard to keep track. But we shouldn't fit in in the world, right? 
Do not love the world or the things of the world. John 2. We should be out of step. We should look different. It shouldn't quite work. We shouldn't quite match. Why? Because the world has a different language than we do. We often hear people talk about my truth and your truth. There is actually a my truth and their truth. There's only one truth, capital T. But the world has a truth that they continue to teach and that people listen to and believe. Who's listening and believing them? Those that are of the world. There's a language that we have that they don't understand and they have a language that we shouldn't be connecting with. That's what John is saying here. There's an us and there's a them. And at the end of the day, in some ways, we should be talking past one another. Because what they believe is inspired by the devil and what we believe is inspired by God. It's really hard to start from those two perspectives and end in the same spot. That's what John's saying. We don't end in the same spot. And what Paul tells us in other places is they have trouble understanding us because they're not spiritually discerned. They they don't have the spirit to help them ascertain the, the truth of what we're saying. The Spirit doesn't just inspire the Word of God. He ongoingly inspires it for us so that we can understand its truths. He's the Spirit of illumination. We don't just need the Bible. We need the Word and the Spirit. And the reason why we understand the truths of the Word of God is the Spirit comes along and illuminates it provides for us understanding and wisdom and insight. Otherwise, we would just be as confused as the world. But thankfully, he has not left us to himself. He's given us the Spirit. But he hasn't done that to the world. And then we get to the we of and us of verse 6. I cannot definitively prove this, but I believe that he's using this in the same way that he began his letter. That was which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes. You and I have not seen Jesus Christ. So it's really difficult for us to put ourselves in the we part of chapter one. And I believe he's employing the same pronoun here in chapter 4 to talk about we, those of us that have seen and heard and have witnessed to the person and work of Jesus Christ in the flesh. What he's saying here is we are from God. Otherwise, that, that sounds really arrogant if you're not an apostle. And what he's saying is Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. They don't listen to the word of God. They don't listen to the apostolic teaching that becomes the New Testament. And what he's saying is we are those that have been ordained and commissioned for this work by Jesus Christ himself. 
upper room discourse is about the Spirit's work in the apostles. We tend to take some of that and apply it too broadly, but some of that is actually pertaining just to the disciples in the upper room. That they are going to teach what they've heard. That's here. That's what's happening. And what is being said here is, whoever knows God listens to us. And this is why my work is to be tethered to the word of God, that I'm to teach what's in the text. Why? Because I know what's in the text comes from God, has been ordained and authored by him. And my job is to teach that to you. And your job is not to listen to me as much as it's to listen to the words of Christ that came through his apostles that are now coming through me. This is what Calvin argues, that the word of God, that as the minister is aligned with the word of God, the person in the pew should be hearing the very word of God. Because the minister is aligned to the truths of the word, not because there's anything special about the minister. But there's something extremely significant and special about the word. And what we'll find in our world today is there are competing voices in everybody's ears. Truth and error, that's how the verse ends. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. There's always going to be a desire to be popular. Every minister of the word of God is going to have to wrestle with that. But the point is to be faithful. You'll hear me say this more than just today. You've heard me say it a lot of times already. This is why you need to pray for your minister. Maybe that's selfish. I don't think it is. I I say it because it protects your soul. You need to pray that this pulpit is always guarded by God that the truths that come from here are aligned with the word of God. That I never preach my agendas, but I preach the words that are inspired by God. If you pray nothing else for me, pray for that. It matters. There's a spirit of truth and there's a spirit of error. And as you pray, not only for this pulpit, you should pray for faithful pulpits all over the, in the United States and all over the world. That what is proclaimed week after week, month after month, year after year, is truth. Because that's what people need. Some won't listen. Some want their ears tickled. The point is not to tickle ears. The, 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 the point is to proclaim truth, to proclaim the truth about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, how we do that matters. But the message has to be aligned with God's word. It's spirit and word. Jesus said in John that my sheep know my voice. To listen and follow. And I think what John is saying here is hear the voice of your shepherd. 
tune out all the other voices. Hear my voice. I've coached track and field for over 25 years, and I can tell you that my most successful athletes are the ones that, that hear my voice when they run. There's a lot of other voices that compete with mine. And what I tell him is, tune them out. Hear the voice of your coach. Your coach knows what he's doing. Your coach knows you. Your coach has been there in your training. Your coach has watched you every step of the way. Your parents love you more than I do, but they know less than I do. Listen to your coach. And what John is just shouting from the scriptures is hear the voice of God. Hear truth. And live in accordance to what you hear. Live in all of what Psalm 119 would say. All of the freedom that truth brings. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we would pray that you would help us to hear and to believe and follow the apostolic teaching of your word. Help us never to separate word and spirit. Help us to be those that hear the voice of our master. That we would tune out all things that speak wrongfully of Jesus Christ. Protect your sheep. Protect them so that they might walk in your way. And Father, we ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.